welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. If you are listening on Counterpunch Plus, watching a video, thank you so much for the continued support. If you are not yet a subscriber to Counterpunch Plus, well, go on over to the website, get that subscription. Listen, you could go to Substack. You could support like 12 different people at piecemeal and do whatever you want to do that way, of course. But Counterpunch is unique. We've been around almost 30 years. We represent something unique on the left. And if you feel that supporting independent media on the left with this kind of uh, perspective is important, as I do, please go to the website, get that subscription. It is a great way to support us. It is also a great way to feel like you're contributing to keeping uh, free thought and discourse going, especially as it seems ever more um, oppressive for our, you know, free speech and so forth. Anyway, let's not get, let's not, get, let's not get sidetracked here. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Sidney Poitier. Of course, Sidney Poitier recently passed away. You're, we are recording here on the evening of January 10th, and I have probably the best person I could be speaking with on the subject. Aram Gutsuzian is with me. Aram is a professor of history at the University of Memphis. His most recent book, The Men and the Moment, The Election of 1968 and the Rise of Partisan Politics in America. And uh, for our discussion, today, I want to just highlight his 2004 book, really, really important one, Sidney Poitier, Man, Actor, Icon, the website, Aram Gutsuzian, that's A-R-A-M-G-O-U-D-S-O-U-Z-I-A-N.com. That's the website. Aram, welcome to Counterpunch. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the book and for this contribution and, you know, giving us a chance to talk about Sidney Poitier, obviously, in marking his passing. Listen, everybody's got a television, a radio, a phone. Everybody's heard the tributes. Everybody understands that this is an icon, a legend who has passed. But help us to broaden the narrative a little bit and tell us a little bit about maybe what the mainstream press might be missing or how they might be lacking context in talking about Sidney Poitier and his life. That's an interesting question, Eric. Thanks. Um, you know, one thing that I've been really struck by is just the the breadth of commentary uh, on Poitier since his passing. Um, it is, you know, I lived with the with, with him right for while well, I was writing the biography uh, almost twenty years ago now, and um, you know, I, I was in deep with his life, and then to sort of step back from that for for so much time, and then to see all these outpourings uh, and all these different analyses. Uh, it's been in some ways really touching for me and in some ways, you know, stepping back in a time uh, to an earlier part of my life uh, when I was really, you know, my big question was about the meaning of Sidney Poitier as I, as I tried to understand. Um, and I think now, you know, in, in 2021, 2022, um, we have a, 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 a larger diversity of voices uh, in the mainstream media uh, for that analyze uh, Poitier. And, and there were a lot of African-American voices that I found particularly interesting. It was Perhaps not surprising to see so many people harken back to that scene in In the Heat of the Night when he's slapped by the paternalistic white guy that he's questioning uh, and Poitier slaps him right back, right? And that, and that sort of spoke to a particular moment in African-American cinema, in, uh, sort of as, at the dawn of black power. And Poitier, who's not a figure associated, of course, with the black power movement, uh, to have uh, you know, struck back in that way was, was, was of particular resonance. But to your question, which is, which is a really interesting question, um, Particularly coming, you know, from for your listeners at Counterpunch, right, who are tend to be more left wing oriented. Um, one theme that we haven't seen much discussion of uh, in these public remembrances is the milieu that Poitier grew out of uh, when he was making that transition 
from the stage in the late 40s uh, to his early Hollywood roles in the 1950s and sort of the bumpy start to his career, which was very much shaped by the Cold War. Uh, and to be a black entertainer in those years after World War II, uh, in the midst of the Cold War, was to really walk on a tightrope in a lot of ways. Um, Paul Robeson uh, was a big figure in African-American stage and singing and some movie roles as well in the 1930s. Uh, and he's, of course, the, you know, a big victim of the blacklist uh, in the late 1940s for his uh, communist sympathies. Uh, a figure like Candida Lee, who maybe a lot of uh, people now don't know about, but he was a very prominent African-American actor of the 1940s. Uh, because of his left-wing associations, found himself on blacklists and, and, and unable to find uh, work after a while. He was he was on a film with Poitier. With Poitier's second film was called Cry the Beloved Country, uh, adaptation of a South African novel. Uh, and uh, Ken Lee was, was the main figure in that uh, story. And, um, you know, Ken Lee's career dries up right after that, uh, and he dies a broken man. So for someone like Sidney Poitier, he's kind of absorbing the lessons, so to speak, of the Paul Robesons and the Canada Lees, but at the same time, but but he shares a lot of those general political sympathies. To be a black actor rooted in New York in the late '40s and early '50s, right? You're you're in this kind of liberal to radical milieu, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of organizations that are that were once communist front organizations in the 1930s and still bear some of those traces. Uh, you know, there's there's sort of a it's a it's a sort of bubbling left wing politics kind of under the surface there. And so, you know, a lot of prominent black entertainers at that time, Alina Horn, Harry Belafonte, uh, you know, they, they can find themselves on these certain watch lists uh, that existed among, among right wing organizations. And Poitier doesn't, you know, he's not prominent enough to be really sort of targeted in any sort of way at the beginning of his career. Uh, but when I was doing research for the uh, for the book, you know, I was going through these sort of you know, these right wing watchdog publications of the time to see if there was anything. And I did find one uh, uh, record from 1956 that went back and, and said, oh, he was at this meeting for, uh, for the rally for the Martinsville Seven, you know, one of these left-wing radical causes. Um, and so they were keeping tabs on him. You know, they had a number of those of those events. They were keeping tabs on him throughout that time. In public, however, like in sort of his larger public presentation, Poitier, you know, certainly didn't cast himself at, in that way. And part of this was the advice that Paul Robeson was giving to people like him and Harry Belafonte saying, you know, don't don't follow my path because it's because you're not going to achieve any prominence in that way. Uh, you know, be careful about how you publicly associate. Um, and so there's this constant um, walking this tightrope again. Uh, I can give you one more example. Of this quite um, big breakthrough in a lot of ways is getting on a film called Blackboard Jungle, uh, which came out in 1955. Uh, and Blackboard Jungle was a um, was one of those uh, really youth-oriented films. It, was, it, it had uh, "Rock Around the Clock" by Bill Haley was was the song that it featured. So, like the Wild Ones with Marlon Brando or "Rebel Without a Cause," uh, it was one of those sort of really youth-oriented re rebel films of, of the fifties. And Poitier really wanted to be in this movie. It was a big break, uh, and it was an MGM film. And MGM was one of the big studios, and they wanted him to sign some kind of loyalty oath. He was really uncomfortable with it. And he didn't really, uh, and he was sort of like taken aback, but, but he also wanted to work on the film. And so he goes to the director, Richard Brooks, and says like, you know, I want to be in the film. I don't want to sign this oath. I don't know what to, what to you know, it's, it, it strikes me as sort of uncomfortable, uh, makes him uncomfortable. And uh, the director's just like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just don't sign it. Just don't go back to that office. <laughs> so he never signed it. Now he didn't make, he didn't make a big stand, right? He, he couldn't, he, he didn't want to make it into a big public to do because he knew he'd lose the, the work if he did. 
But at the same time, he also adhered to his principles. And then he ended up getting, you know, he had this electric performance of Black Lord Jungle that really started to vault his career to the next stage. So to to some of what you were talking about, can you tell me a little bit or tell us a little bit about the American Negro Theater and uh, where where uh, Poitiers, along with Belafonte, among others, kind of got their start, where they began to cut their teeth? And then specifically, if you could connect that back to what you were just alluding to in terms of the socialist, communist, left-wing milieu that existed at that time, because, of course, uh, the American Negro Theater is modeled after, well, the most prominent black communist in America, W.E.B. Du Bois, and many of the writings and so forth that came out of prior generations. So can you talk a little bit about that scene? Sure. Uh, and again, the Ameri- if you want to talk about Balancing Act, the American Negro Theater uh, in the 1940s had to do some version of that as well. Uh, you know, it, the, the A.N.T., as it was called, was not a, uh, didn't have its roots in, you know, like a lot of theater troops in the 1930s, which were associated with left-wing causes, what were called communist front organizations, you know, often sort of background funding from the Communist Party. American Negro Theater was an independent uh, theater. Um, and it was uh, two African-American men uh, who started it and who ran it. Um, so it, it wasn't directly part of that milieu. That said, a lot of the people who were involved in the ANT, the Poitiers, the Belfontes, Ruby D, Ossie Davis, Alice Childress, who becomes a really significant a writer for Freedom Ways, uh, African-American publication. Um, these are among the people who are part of the ANT. Um, and so, you know, the, the American Negro Theater uh, is really unique in that it is this really independent black organ, uh, black theater organization uh, in the 1940s. Um, but it has to have a foot, you know, how can it keep its independence while also, uh, you know, serving as a launching pad for these young actors uh, while uh, trying to make some money, while selling uh, plays to Broadway. Um, and so, you know, Broadway's were the big temptation for a lot of these actors. They don't want to spend their entire careers in the, in the ANT. They, they want to move on to Broadway and get, and get bigger roles. Uh, and so they're constantly trying to, you know, balance those two impulses. And they do it pretty successfully in the late 1940s, which is when Poitier is there. There's a play called Anna Lucasta uh, that they, it's adapted from a Polish play uh, and done with an all black cast. And, and it ends up traveling the country in a couple different troops. And that's how Poitier you know, first breaks into the ANT. Um, but it also falls apart by the end of the 1940s, mostly because, you know, integration starting to be somewhat successful. You know, the beginnings of integration on Broadway are just beginning to happen. There's a few more roles for black actors. So all these young actors, they're taking Broadway roles, even taking Hollywood roles like Poitier, and they leave the ANT. And so the organization falls apart by the end of the decade. So in terms of its politics, it's kind of in between. It, it's not it's it, it's not considered one of those communist front style organizations, but at the same time, it is growing out of, you know, it's, it's populated by a lot of those same kinds of figures. And tell us, if you could, a little bit about what Poitier brought with him uh, to uh, his training, his background coming from the Bahamas. How did his worldview get shaped in his early formative years? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as you, as you mentioned, of course, Poitier was born in the Bahamas um, and grew up quite poor. Uh, he lived on Cat Island, a small rural island, uh, until uh, he was uh, a, a young teenager uh, and then moved to Nassau, uh, the capital city, and then, you know, starting to live in sort of a troubled life. And so he, uh, he had a brother in Miami. And so he came to Miami and then from there migrated north to Harlem all by himself. Um, but because of his Bahamian background, because he came, uh, grew up in the, in the Caribbean, he grew up in, in basically an all black uh, situation for the most part. You know, everybody he knew was black uh, with, with a few rare exceptions. 
Um, so he wasn't used to sort of the deferential racial patterns that African-Americans had to endure, particularly, that's, you know, his time in the South was very, was very quick because uh, he, he couldn't adjust to Jim Crow. Um, and then he ends up in Harlem, uh, essentially by himself. And while there is a big West Indian community in New York at that time, it is not, there aren't a lot of Bahamians. Uh, they're, they're from Trinidad, they're from elsewhere. Um, and so he doesn't have a built-in community to, to be around. He's, he's very much alone. Um, he, you know, he scrapes by, he's a dishwasher, he works on a dock, he does, he does all sorts of odd jobs. Um, and then he sees an ad for, you know, the American Negro Theater, and he's like, well, I've tried all these other jobs, I might as well try acting. Um, but what he finds is that, you know, he, he doesn't have any skills for it at the beginning, he still kind of talks in sort of a sing-song, Bahamian-style accent. Um, but over time, uh, he trains himself to speak like the men on the radio, essentially. Uh, and he really, like, he just gets committed to, to becoming a great actor. He, it's finally something that he can dive into and see a future for himself for. Uh, so he's very impressively self-trained and has just this enormous amount of energy and ambition uh, when he's younger. Uh, and it, it's a, he was constantly dealing, you know, he writes constantly about how he was dealing with his insecurities throughout his life, right? Uh, and acting gave him a sense of strength, a sense of identity, a sense of, you know, a chance to be someone. To, uh, to live through somebody else made made him figure out who he was himself. Um, and so, you know, his his great gift as an actor is probably that that restrained energy that he can bring to that he can bring, especially to the screen. Right. Uh, we see him both as this mannered, cultured, restrained figure. And then right underneath that is is the roiling energy. Right. Uh, that, that's what he does best. And and. He's the right, in that sense, he's kind of the right man at the right time for a lot of these new roles that, that he, that he's, he's getting because they are roles in which, of course, he has to face racial prejudice, right? Because race is a theme, of course, in much of, in much of his work. And he has to respect, respond to it with dignity and intelligence and restraint, right? Sort of these, the emergent values that we see with civil rights protesters, for instance, in, in the late 50s and early 1960s. But at the same time, he needs to communicate that it's unacceptable, right? And, and sort of that restrained rage behind it, the, the icy boil, um, communicates especially to his African-American audiences, right? That you know, there's a deeper situation here. It's part of his talent as an actor. Absolutely. And there's something else about it that, you know, I didn't even really think about until going back and rewatching some of these movies, especially in the last I don't know, 48 hours or so. But I mean... There's something incredibly fortunate about the time that he broke into acting, right? Because it was just at the moment after, just after the war, the so-called message movies had a brief moment in Hollywood. And here comes this like, you know, amazing, attractive, just, just, just awe inspiring young actor onto the screen. And here are these like ready-made roles for him almost. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, his first movie, the movie that he, uh, his first Hollywood film was called No Way Out. It's in 1950. And it's one of those message movies that you just alluded to. It's, it's actually the, probably the last movie in that, there's a cycle of movies that started around 1947. Uh, most people know Gentleman's Agreement with Gregory Peck, right? Um, but there's a movie like Pinky, which is about racial passing. that are They're investigating themes of prejudice and, and race uh, in America. Uh, and No Way Out, his breakthrough film, uh, is in 1950, at the end of this cycle. And he plays a doctor in it named Luther Brooks. And if you think about sort of the older stereotypes of African-Americans in Hollywood, that they are sort of over-sexualized, you know, bucks, right? Like in Birth of a Nation, that they're, you know, grinning song and dance men, 
that they're step and fetch it style characters who are sort of slothful jokers. Um, Poiré is the reverse of all those things, right? He doesn't pose the same. He's, you know, of course he's, he's, he's exceptionally handsome, but he's not, but he's a sort of a safe sexy, right? He, he has a housewife in, uh, and he, in most of his roles and he doesn't uh, show a sexual aggressiveness uh, very almost never in his movies do you see sort of a romantic arc to the story, right? Uh, which is very different from most white movie stars. Uh, so there's that sexual threat is contained. He he almost never fights back in in No Way Out, for instance. He even turns himself into the police for a crime he didn't commit, so that uh, to help defuse a race riot, a potential race riot. Uh, so he sacrifices himself, and that's a theme we see again and again in Poitier's films. Uh, he's in, he's educated. He's a doctor, right? He's intelligent. He's well-spoken. He is nothing like Steppenfetcher, right? So he's a conscious reversal of all those stereotypes. And he's the perfect actor, the right? perfect vehicle, as you were suggesting, right? Through which to communicate a lot of those values that are associated with that early era of the civil rights movement, when there's, you know, when image politics are so important, right? If you think about a nonviolent protester uh, dressed in formal clothes, like their Sunday best and, and sacrificing themselves, uh, bef- before, uh, a violent white oppressor, right? Uh, Poitier is kind of doing a version of that on film. Uh, before we head to the break, I want to ask you a little bit about how, um, the liberal narrative around the civil rights era and, and, and how it operates and Poitier's role in that. And what I mean by that is that there's somehow, and maybe this is a bit of uh, you know, sort of my left-wing coloring of this, but there's a bit of this sort of idea that's, uh, you know, inculcated in, in the United States that, oh, well, you know, the 1960s came around and America went through some kind of self introspective, you know, uh, reckoning whereby they evaluated race and saw the error of their ways and move forward into a better and progressive future. And here's this wonderful actor who embodies all of these things as we saw in this period, right? But it's not so neat. It's not really like that. And America didn't just out of nowhere begin to evaluate race and look at these things, right? There was a long trajectory. And in many ways, a lot of uh, uh, black actors, black entertainers, robes and others, they forced much of this introspection, much of this conversation that then Poitier and Belafonte and others kind of took up the mantle of. Can you speak mm-hmm. to that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, as as the scholars of the civil rights movement, uh, we, we can think of the civil rights movement in, in a few ways, right? And one is that sort of classical liberal narrative uh, that is contained to more or less the Martin Luther King years, right, from the mid-50s to 1968, uh, that is uh, focused particularly upon the South um, and, and eradicating Jim Crow there, that is uh, rooted around nonviolent protest and around sort of the big moments like Birmingham and Selma and Freedom Summer and, and what have you. Um, and that is more or less, you know, um, a story of progress and a story of triumph, you know, that we, that we eradicated Jim Crow. Um that is not a wrong narrative, right? Though all those things occurred, and there was this, you know, sort of national attention to uh, to, uh, to race at this time, and there was an incredibly significant remedial legislation like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and it did, you know, the the non the major nonviolent protests, these big flashpoints, were critically important to the larger national uh, history of the time. But that's one layer of the story, as you were suggesting, right? Uh, scholars complicate that story by talking about what we call a long civil rights movement, one that stretches back into the twenties and thirties. Uh, one that is focused as much on the North as it is on the South and not just on legal forms of Jim Crow, but, but you know, uh, issues of human justice and, and economic rights and so forth. Uh, what, a story that focuses more on the role of women activists, right? 
uh, because as you get sort of on the ground and look at the grassroots, you often see uh, how important, how central women are to the civil rights movement. Uh, one that is both kind of more local, that doesn't just follow King around, but looks, look, looks at what's happening on the ground, but also is international in the sense that it connects to the Cold War and to African independence and, and sees how these things are intertwined. So to your question, right, like how does Poitier fit into this? In a lot of ways, his career is an interesting model for thinking about the more classical liberal model of the civil rights movement because it, because it follows in some ways the arc of that movement. Um, you know, it, it grows out of this sort of liberal to radical milieu of the, four, of the late 40s and 50s, which is where civil rights was happening at, the, at that stage. Um, he is an avant-garde figure by the late 1950s when he's making a film like The Defiant Ones, which seems might seem dated uh, to a, a later audience. In that movie, he's handcuffed to a white man and they sort of achieve a racial understanding by the end and Poitier sacrifices at the end. But when that movie comes out, it's groundbreaking. There's never been anything like that. It doesn't show in the deep south. And then when you think about when Poitier wins his Oscar, he wins the Oscar in 1964 for a film called Lilies of the Field, which is a sweet, low-budget movie in which he plays this traveling handyman who builds this chapel for these German nuns. And it's a huge surprise hit. And the reason it's such a big hit is because it's capturing a certain national mood. It's after the March on Washington. It's after the Birmingham campaign. People want these kind of reassuring stories. And Poitier becomes kind of a, a vehicle through which people want to achieve racial understanding. So... That's significant, right? And of course, his big three films of 1967, To Start With Love, In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. He's still playing essentially the same kinds of roles that he's been playing for his entire career, right? But what's different for a city party, as opposed to a Paul Newman or a Marlon Brando or whoever else, right? For Poitier, his image stayed the same, but the politics changed entirely around his image, right? So those films, which are exceptionally popular because they are coming out around the time of urban riots and black power and people are like Ooh, like city party is almost like a calming influence on them black people can still fit in this liberal framework but then after King, king's assassination in 1968 party's career falls off a cliff he can't do those kinds of roles anymore no one wants to see city party on screen in the same way that they once did so the his opportunities kind of follow the liberal arc of the civil rights movement that doesn't mean that as a human being he necessarily uh did exactly that um or that the movement just looked like that but because his career was so much dictated by public opinion and mass consumer, right, by the, by the appetites of, of consumers around the country, that's the, the bottom line in Hollywood. It was very much shaped. Poitier's career is an interesting way to think about public attitudes about race and how they shift over that time and in some ways how they don't either. Well, that will segue us very nicely into the couple questions I want to lead with when we come back from the break. But let's take a quick break again. Um, I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of the book. It's It's been a number of years now. 2004 was the publication date. Sidney Poitier, man, actor, icon. Do listen to the music. Enjoy. And we will be right back.
and we are back chatting here about Sidney Poitier, Sidney Poitier's life. I, I couldn't have a uh, better guest to discuss this again. Um, uh, Aram Gutsuzian is with me. The book, Sidney Poitier, Man, Actor, Icon. I would also just plug the most recent book, The Men and the Moment, The Election of 1968 and the Rise of Partisan Politics in America. Well, Aram, before the break, you were kind of already uh, preempting my next question. So let me just lead with that. Talk a little bit more if you could draw out a little bit more how you would describe Poitiers' relationship with uh, black radicalism, which emerges in, especially in the second half of the 1960s. Um, Malcolm X, of course, being an obvious example, but the Black Panthers and many others. Um, not only what was his relationship, tenuous though it may have been to radicalism, but maybe how it affected him and how he may have affected some radical politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an interesting question. You know, Poitier, probably like a lot of, you know, the, maybe the, fl- the flip way of thinking about it is someone like John Wayne, right, who, who represents the, the other end of the, of the political spectrum in terms of Hollywood stars uh, and, and politics, right? Uh, John Wayne started to play these particular kinds of roles uh, in the 30s and 40s and 50s as sort of a you know, patriot in the Western. And then he, it became sort of part of his own identity, right, in that way. And I think the same thing kind of happened to Sidney Poitier, in, in a slightly later era, uh, in that, you know, he played these characters of great, you know, humanity uh, and kindness and decency. Uh, and his his own self-identities kind of got wrapped up in, in that, too, um, that it was that he saw this as 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 the way forward. Now, he was a realist. He said, look, I'm the only one, meaning I'm the only black actor getting leading roles uh, in, in the midst of the civil rights movement. As long as I'm the only one. I'm not going to go off and play villains. I'm not going to go off and play scoundrels. You know, I'm, uh, I have to, you know, I, I have to represent blackness, right? Essentially, uh, 10 million people um, in the United States and then more abroad. So he was very careful about that. Now, he, you know, he, of course, he was active in the civil rights movement. He wasn't an activist in the sense of, say, his best friend, Harry Belafonte, right, who was uh, a close advisor to Martin Luther King, a bridge to SNCC and other civil rights organizations, a fund, you know, a direct fundraiser. Uh, but Poitier, you know, he was he was involved in the movement. He would participate in fundraisers. He there's a famous story of him and Belafonte flying down to Mississippi dur- in, during Freedom Summer uh, in 1964 to deliver funds uh, to uh, civil rights workers and being chased by the Klan and you know the terrifying night, night they spent there. Um, Soon after his, uh, he divorced his wife, uh, Juanita Poitier, in the, in the early to mid 1960s. And soon after that, she hosted a summit at their house uh, with a variety of black political leaders. And they invited Malcolm X as well. And that was the first time uh, that Poitier met Malcolm X uh, in, I think it was 1964, uh, you know, in the midst of sort of Malcolm X's um, you know, tumultuous time as well. So, you know, of course, he had, you know, he had connections to some of these issues. But in the late 60s, when he's making to serve with love in the heat of the night, guess who's coming to dinner. And these are of course are very popular films that are kind of soothing the liberal center at that time uh, that are reassuring many Americans, particularly white Americans that, you know, the urban riots aren't the only way to think about black people. The, the more romantic image that many white people had of black people in the early 1960s is still resonant. You know, party was sort of a balm on these national wounds in that way. Um, but he's starting to get increasingly criticized by black radicals uh, for these films. Uh, and the most famous example of this occurs in August of 1967. Uh, it's by a black playwright, a guy named Clifford Mason, 
who writes this uh, big article in the New York Times. And the headline is, why does white America love Sidney Poitier so? Uh, and it, it's basically, a, uh, it's responding in some ways to an interview that Poitier did in the New York Times a few weeks earlier, in which he defended a lot of these roles. Um, and it's kind of a film-by-film film takedown of Poitier, basically saying that he's a sop to, to white Americans, uh, that, he's not, that he's not acting in full black manhood. And this, it infuriates Poitier when this, when, when this comes out. He, um, you know, Mason calls him a showcase N-word. Um, it, it, it strikes him as very cruel. So he becomes very, and that's indicative of the way that he becomes quite defensive toward these criticisms of black radicals. When I was doing the research for the book, it was clear Poitier was always, you know, uh, in media accounts, tried to be very restrained and respectful and, and not sort of, you know, show his temper. Uh, but I found this interview that he did with Ruby D that was in the Schomburg collection, the, the black archive in, in New York city, uh, in Harlem. Uh, and it's in the Ruby D papers, or it's just an interview she did with him that wasn't for publication. And it's in, I think like 1970 or so it's a couple of years after this backlash has begun. And it's just this expletive film tirade by Poitier basically saying, you know, uh, let them make their own movies. You know, if you don't want to see my own movies, you know, fine, just don't go see it. Right. It's exceptionally like bitter and defensive at all the criticism he's faced because he feels like he's been, ha- you know, he has had to be this careful figure to, to, uh, to because of the position that he was in uh, and that he's tried to do the best job that he can as sort of this singular figure. Um so the backlash that he faces from radicals really burns him. In fact, he moves to the Bahamas uh, in the early, uh, right around 1970 or so uh, because he's tired of the atmosphere in the United States. He, uh, he, he lives there for about three or four years. Uh, and that's right in the, at the height of the so-called black exploitation craze, right? When Shaft and Superfly and Sweet Sweetback, there are all these movies that are coming out. And those heroes in those films are the reversal of the Poitier stereotype, right? Where Poitier is mannered and virtuous and middle class and um, friends with whites, right? These these are heroes who are often violent and openly sexual and um, part of sort of the urban gritty milieu, right? So they're very very distinct from the from the Poitier icon, and those are the film figures that are probably more associated with the black power era in terms, in terms of film, right? Poitier is much more associated with that kind of liberal integrationist phase uh, that the mainstream understands in the, in the early to mid 1960s. Yeah. And to that point, it's almost like, you know, at, at a certain point, Poitier continues to make white people's films, whereas black people are beginning to make black people's films for black people to be shown in black theaters for black audiences, mm-hmm. you know? And that said, Poitier, respond like you know after that sort of transition period he makes three films with bill cosby that are uh these very popular comedies black casts black production uh it's funded through his own production company uh which he which he started right at the end of the 1960s uh and all three films are what you are crossover hits like the white audiences watch them too and, and again it's, it's sort of a, a black milieu now they're not showcases for Poitier's strengths. They're, they're comedies, and he's not a, a great comic actor, but he, but he's an exceptionally generous filmmaker. Like you know, there's Bill Cosby and Jimmy Walker and all these other uh, figures. Harry Belafonte has a hilarious turn in one of the, in one of these films. Um, they're just these really fun films. Uh, and I know <laughs> we know what happens to Cosby's reputation at a, at a later time, but at this time, of course, he, Cosby is the TV equivalent of, of Poitier on film. Right? He'd been in I Spy. He'd had his own comedy specials. Uh, he was the he was the crossover um, figure in comedy and television that Poitier was in film. Um, so you know, 
it's not the Poitier like retreats into nothing after that. He is really, you know, he makes this impressive shift that puts that put that employs a lot of black people in Hollywood. Um, and that's an understated uh, legacy in his career as well. You've mentioned him a couple of times, and so I think it would be remiss if we didn't discuss Harry Belafonte a little bit more. Could you give a little bit of a comparison and contrast of these two guys? I mean, they were so close. They're intimately linked, of course, in the popular imagination for anybody who who knows this his- history. But um, tell us a little bit about them. How were they different from each other? They're, they're such a fascinating pair because in some ways so similar and in some ways so different. Um, you know, Poitier grew up in the Bahamas. Belafonte grew up in Jamaica. They moved to the United States at roughly the same time. They're almost the exact same age. While Poitier is in the Army for a year uh, in, in the middle of World War II, Belafonte is in the Navy. Uh, they both want to get into acting. They're in the American Negro Theater at the same time. They become they, they become kind of rivals <laughs> at, uh, at first uh, because Poitier is the understudy for, for Belafonte in, in, the, in the first uh, play that they're in together. Uh, but they also become friends. They start they, they were so poor they, and they were, they were trying to like learn the world of the theater that sometimes they would split one theater ticket. Someone would, would, uh, would go to the show and an intermission, they bring out the ticket and the other person would take the seat for the second act. Um, so they were like, they're almost more like brothers in the sense they were super competitive with each other, but, but exceptionally close. Um, and they were very much associated with each other, but they also had very different avenues to success. You know, Belafonte had some, a few Hollywood roles, but he was kind of wooden as an actor. That said, Belafonte was a terrific uh, performer, right? He, he, and he was openly, uh, he was a Calypso singer who was, and sang folk songs and was exceptionally popular in the late 1950s. Uh, and a tr- transcendent live performer, uh, and really a sex symbol. And of course, Belafonte was light-skinned, was opposed to Poitier being dark-skinned. As we, as we talked about before, Belafonte was much more openly an activist, while Poitier was an entertainer first, who, and activism sort of grew out of that. Um, Belafonte was more, you know, wants to more openly disrupt the system, so to speak, and, and Poitier wanted to work within the system, and that was a tension between the two of them. Uh, for a time, they didn't speak. Uh, after King was assassinated, uh, they had a disagreement about uh, what was the proper memorial service for, uh, for him afterwards. They were both on this you know, a part of this committee, and they didn't speak to each other for a few years. And then they made a film together called Buck and the Preacher in 1972 that brought them back together and made them friends again. So it's this back and forth dynamic between the two that's really interesting. Sounds like uh, every very, very, very close friendship that goes through those kinds of ups and downs and is built on both conflicts and similarities and so forth. So it is fascinating, especially since, you know, for those of us who come one, two, three generations after these guys, I mean, they're like, you know, icons. It's hard to think of them as like, you know, two guys hanging out. Can you tell me a little bit about um, what would be a way to examine Poitiers legacy and relevance today. I mean, in one sense, it seems like a hundred years ago, right? So much is different than it was, you know, 55 years ago when those films were coming out or 60 years ago when they were coming out. But then again, Maybe not, you know, in the wake of uh, Black Lives Matter and the George, George Floyd rebellion and so forth, a lot of these same issues, many of the exact same discussions that were had in 1963 were being had in 2020. So um, obviously losing Poitiers now in, in this time, um, just speak to that a little bit, what his place is and what his relevance, if any, there is today. That's an interesting question. And I think you know, for 
for 2021, where black politics stands now, where, of course, you know, organizations like Black Lives Matter and, um, you know, especially any, uh, since the murder of Trayvon Martin and the swelling of activism that we've seen since in the 2000 teens and especially in 2020 in the aftermath of George Floyd and others, uh, that's been, you know, that has been a movement that has been uh, very much sort of small D democratic in a lot of ways. Um that has where we've seen sort of the central roles of women of, of LGBTQ people, LGBTQ uh, people, uh, of just sort of a broader range uh, within the movement, and very much within that a very conscious rejection of what we might call the politics of respectability. Right, the, the idea that for Black people to achieve equality, they have to sort of be on a higher moral plane and, and be more respectable and be and, and live by higher middle class values than the rest of society to, to achieve that equality, right? That, that there's a very direct pushback to that. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that's a, a, a response in a lot of ways to the Obama era, right? Um, that, you know, Obama was this exceptional figure, right? And he was supposed to be this transcendent figure who pulled people together across race lines. And you know, the upshot of it was, you know, our racial situation was no different in 2016 than it was in 2008. So to think about Poitier in the realm of contemporary politics, I think it's probably most valuable to think about him in some ways in step with the, the public image of Barack Obama. Uh, because what we do see in the early, two, throughout the first decade of the 21st century as people are trying to explain the political phenomenon that, that is Barack Obama up through the 2008 election, one of the metaphors that we see again and again used or the, or the explanatory models that we see again by media, by pundits, is they paint him in the, in the vein of Sidney Poitier. Um, you know, that he follows this, you know, he's again, this exceptional figure, right? Like he had a Harvard Law Review and constitutional law professor at the University of Chicago, uh, that he's mannered, that he's restrained, that he doesn't make white people feel bad about themselves and he doesn't challenge them too much, uh, that he is a, a figure that, that white people can understand. And we see this again and again, uh, especially the metaphor of the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, uh, where, you know, Poitier plays this perfect black doctor who marries, who, who wants the blessing of Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn to, uh, so that he can marry their white daughter. Uh, that metaphor of guess who's coming to dinner gets used again and again to explain uh, Barack Obama uh, by liberals, by uh, progressives who think that it's, you know, sort of uh, uh, cheating the system, that, you know, that, that, it's, that it's asking too much, that, uh, but also by from conservatives. Who say like, oh, this is like the return of Sidney Poitier, and they grumble about it. Um, so Poitier is, you know, is in sort of like he has this connection to Barack Obama. I think in terms of um, the the public image that they present and the way that it serves to sort of cross over into white liberal territory. Well, in closing now, in just a couple of minutes that we have remaining, I feel like I want to ask you to do us a little favor, for, especially for those people who uh, might be listening who are not film nerds and who maybe don't know his entire filmography. So if you are listening and you are brand new to Poitiers films, your opinion, where should you start and why? Good question. Um, I would say... I would answer the question of like, if you're going to watch one city party film, I could answer that question in a few different ways. Probably the best single performance in a, in a party film by, by party himself is in a raisin in the sun, uh, which was adapted. He was in the stage version of the original Broadway version, 
1959 and then in the 1961 film. And the 1961 film is almost filmed like a play. It's, it's very it's sort of very tight quarters of, of, of the uh, apartment in, in which uh, it takes place. And Poirier plays Walter Lee, Walter Lee Younger, who is the a young uh, man. They've just been, uh, they just had an inheritance and he, and he squanders some of it. And, and, and the family is going to move into a into a white neighborhood and he sort of achieves his manhood by the end. He goes through this terrific arc. And it's, it's, a, it's a play and then a film script written by Lorraine Hansberry, uh, a black playwright. Uh, and it's just it's the one of the few roles that really let him go through a really a really important character arc and really go through a transformation. Uh, it allows him to to sort of flex his muscles as an actor in ways that that other uh, films don't necessarily do. Um, to me, the best film that he's in, however, is probably In the Heat of the Night in 1967. Uh, it's just filmed so beautifully. The, cinemat- the cinematography is uh, impeccable. And the performances are extraordinary. It's not just Poitier, but in fact, the, the, the actor who wins the best actor for that year is his co-star in that film, Rod Steiger, who plays the racist white sheriff with which Sidney Poitier's Virgil Tibbs, uh, who's a black detective, together solve a, a murder mystery. Uh, and it's you know it's set in, it's supposed to be set in a Mississippi town, uh, and it's just a it's just a really riveting film. Uh, but those aren't the only two Poitier films the, that I would say to see. Uh, we mentioned earlier um, Blackboard Jungle in 1955, which is a really good sort of period uh, piece of the, of, the, of the mid-1950s and sort of the, the threat of juvenile delinquency was, was sort of a big social and political concern at the time. The Defiant Ones in 1958, in which he's handcuffed to Tony Curtis. Uh, Poitier wins a uh, his first Oscar nomination for Best Actor in this film. Um, Elizabeth Field was his Oscar-winning performance uh, that we mentioned before. Um Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is an iconic film and really an important one for, for understanding racial attitudes in America. And it's got a good performance. It's not just by Poitier, but also by from Spencer Tracy in his last ever role, Catherine Hepburn. Um, so those are just some of the Poitier films that I might suggest to someone. Those are the sort of the key central ones in my mind. Well, since I just watched it four hours ago, I would put in my vote for No Way Out. I had never seen that movie. It was awesome. And it is available on Criterion. If anybody's interested, Poitier's first film, it's so good. And uh, I also love Richard Whitmark and uh, film noir in general. So that's a plus. Um, okay, well, we are out of time. I want to thank um, Aram Gatsuzian for coming on Counterpunch today. Again, he is a professor of history at the University of Memphis. Get yourself, well, the holidays are over, but you could do like a belated holiday or hey, it's Eastern Orthodox Christmas or something like that. The men and the moment, the election of 1968 and the rise of partisan politics in America. And of course, the book uh, about Sidney Poitier that we've been discussing here today, Sidney Poitier, man, actor, icon. Go to the website. That's A-R-A-M-G-O-U-D-S-O-U-Z-I-A-N.com to follow all of Aram's work. Aram, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch and talking with us today. Eric, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support, and we will chat again next week.